You know, some of my best memories took place at, uh, at the dinner table, okay? Maybe if you're like me, a lot of wonderful memories and times have come sitting around the table with uh, friends or family and just connecting on a deep level. A lot of fun memories. For example, growing up in uh, my home, uh, birthday dinners were always an awesome time because the birthday boy or girl got to choose the menu, okay? And my menu typically was like this. I wanted steak, hot and pink and juicy in the middle, uh, mashed potatoes with peppered white gravy, uh, steamed broccoli with cheese sauce, sometimes green peas or green beans, birthday cake, and of course, you had to have peach pie. Uh, by the way, my birthday is a month or a month from tomorrow, okay? Just FYI, for what it's worth. Um, so that was always a special time, birthday dinners. Great memories as a kid. You always felt special and important, and, and you look forward to the food. Another great uh, meal that I remember um, happened over 25 years ago, 26 years ago almost, uh, when I proposed to Nancy. Uh, she knew it was a special night. I sent roses ahead, told her kind of dress up. We're going someplace special. Had a coat and tie. We went out and had a great meal, and then I proposed to her. And certainly have lots of memories of the holidays where you get together with your family, friends, grandma, grandpa, aunts, uncles, cousins, whoever, and you get together and you celebrate Easter or Thanksgiving or Christmas or something like that. There's something very special, isn't there, about gathering around the table and sharing a meal with somebody, especially um, if you are in, in their home. You know, today, as, um, as Wes said, we're starting a sermon series out of the Gospel of Luke called Meals of the Master. And we're going to be looking at, there's like 20% of the, Luke of, God, of the book of Luke is, 20% of it is stories of, of Jesus at somebody's house, uh, having dinner, asking questions, answering questions, challenging assumptions, all sorts of things happening, miracles sometimes, where Jesus would interact with people. So we're going to be drawing from those stories and, and how can we apply them to our lives and what does that mean for us as we do life together. You know, it's, 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 if you think about it, um, you know, we're created in God's image and God didn't have to make us with the physical need to eat, right? God himself in heaven doesn't eat or drink. He doesn't have to do that. But we're created with the need to eat and drink. If we don't eat or drink enough, uh, we get sick. We could even die. If we eat or drink too much, well, that's not healthy either. So he's created us with that need uh, to eat and drink. And, uh, you know, why is that? Well, I think there's a variety of reasons. I mean, one obviously could be that uh, we learn to depend upon him. You know, we pray the prayer, give us this day our daily bread. You know, we, we pray that. So when we receive the need for food, we, we acknowledge that the food is a gift from God and it comes from God. And we learn to trust him and depend upon him for the things that we need um, every day. I think another aspect of, of, of eating is simply that is fun, isn't it? Most of us enjoy eating. There are certain foods, maybe because they're sweet or sour or salty, or we like the texture, uh, the taste, the smell. There are certain foods that we really enjoy eating. We call them comfort foods, right? Mine are ice cream, and potato chips, and popcorn, things that aren't really good for you. We call them comfort food. Um, but I think really the aspect that we want to focus on today uh, as, as far as what it means to eat and why maybe God designed us with that need is relational. Okay? It says we're created in God's image, and God, of course, we know is reflects the most intimate, personal, close relationship of all, to Trinity. One God, three, three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, we can't approximate that, but I do believe that God has created us 
in his image for deep, close, personal relationships where we really connect with people on a, on a very meaningful, significant um, um, level. And if you think about it, if we didn't have to eat, if we didn't um, have to eat, I mean, how much time would we actually sit down and connect with family? So much of what we do is we sit down and we spend so much time and it would be a lot easier if we didn't have to eat. We'd be a lot more efficient, wouldn't we? We wouldn't have to spend so much time on getting food and making food and eating it and cleaning it up. But God has designed us in such a way that we, 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 we spend time together, we work together, we prepare together, we clean up together, we eat together and connect around the table. Um, that's something we celebrate when we do communion, right? Last week we did a special communion service. And what we do is we, we have a meal together. There's bread and there's juice, which represents Christ's body and blood shed for us on the cross. We remember what he's done for us. And we take it together because we not only commune with God the Father through faith in Christ, but we also commune with each other. The table is a very sacred place. And sharing a meal is a very sacred thing to do. And so today we're, we're starting our sermon series by looking um, at the gospel according to Luke. And we're starting with chapter 5. And this is the meal we're going to start with, starting at verse 27. If you want to follow along, um, you can. It'll be up on the screen, or you can follow along in your Bible as well. So Luke chapter 5, verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. With the Pharisees and teachers of the law, who belonged to their sect, complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come, not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." So Jesus is here at the house of this man named Levi, who's a tax collector. There's a whole crowd of other people, a lot of tax collectors, apparently. And there might be some Pharisees mingled in there, but they, they certainly approach Jesus and ask him about this. What are you doing eating with these, with these people? Which tells us that Jesus was really, as you look through the Gospels, you see that Jesus was really an equal opportunity guest. You know, he didn't really discriminate. He went to the house of Pharisees and Gentiles. He went to the house of, of tax collectors. He, he had meals with prostitutes and social pariahs, uh, the religious, the non-religious. He, he ate with anybody who invited him, really. And, and during those meals, he would teach. He would ask questions. He would answer questions. He would use parables and do contrast. He offered forgiveness. He even healed. And he wasn't afraid of controversy. You know, if you wanted kind of a nice, easygoing dinner party where nobody would kind of stir things up, you didn't invite Jesus. Because when you look at the accounts of Jesus going to dinner, usually somebody would get upset. He'd offend somebody. Uh, he, would, he, would, he would maybe reveal something about their heart or their beliefs that they didn't like. Um, he was, nobody could ever accuse Jesus of being a boring dinner guest. So let's take a look now, having kind of a done that. Let's take a look at verse 27. We're going to set the table. See what I did there? Set the table. Okay. We're going to set the table. Verse 27. After this, healing of a paralyzed man is what they're talking about. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Now, a tax collector in Jesus' day was quite a bit different than, say, uh, an IRS agent today. All right. Um, you know, sometimes people make jokes about the IRS. Um, it's 
not always the most efficient. Um, we aren't always happy to get letters from them. We sometimes grumble about how much we have to pay in taxes. Nobody typically gets too excited about an appointment or a meeting with the IRS. But we know and we admit that people who work for the IRS generally are just as good and hardworking people just like us doing their jobs. But in Jesus' day, a tax collector would not have been viewed that way. Okay? Remember, Israel was occupied by the Romans, and that meant that they had little say on how their country was run. They had no say on where their taxes went. Their taxes weren't being used to build up schools and clinics and hospitals in Israel. Most of it was going back to Rome. They had no say on how much they paid, and if they didn't pay enough or didn't pay at all, they'd get jailed or maybe punished or even hurt, have their assets taken and sold. And the people who were collecting taxes, like Levi here, generally were not Romans. They were, in fact, Jews, Israelites, who were working for the Romans. And so they were seen as traitors and sellouts and parasites, feeding off the blood, sweat, and tears of their own people. Nobody wanted to have dinner with a tax collector. And so Jesus finds Levi sitting at his tax booth on the road collecting taxes, the story tells us. And I'm sure Levi was used to the, the stares and the rude comments and, and the cold shoulder that people would give him probably when they would walk by, maybe curse under their breath when they dropped off their taxes, turn away from him, give him an angry look. And, and, and the chapter 5 doesn't tell us how Levi felt about being a social outcast, but I think it's safe for us to say that he, he probably didn't feel real good about it because when Jesus says, follow me, Levi gets up immediately. He leaves everything, it says, and follows Jesus. There's a great book by a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German Lutheran pastor. Uh, He was uh, martyred, uh, hung by Hitler towards the end of World War II because he was speaking out against what uh, what was happening with the Nazis. And and his book called The Cost of Discipleship, really, it's, it's a... It it basically tells us and calls us to a a deeper discipleship, a deeper following of Christ. It says that that it should cost us something. It should cost us something to follow Jesus Christ. That that Christ is not calling us to a, a partial commitment. I mean, nowhere in Scripture does it say, take up your cross some of the time and follow me. Nowhere does it say, love the Lord your God with some of your heart, some of your soul, some of your mind. No, Jesus says things like this from Luke 9. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. When Jesus calls us to follow him, when he invites us to follow him, he's asking for a total commitment. He's asking for total buy-in. And even with all his faults, to Levi's credit, he understood that. He, he got it. He understood what Jesus was calling him to. And he doesn't hesitate. He leaves everything it says, everything, his way of life, his livelihood. And he follows Jesus. And from that point on, his life was never the same. We, we know that his, his, his name then became Matthew, one of the twelve disciples author of the gospel according to Matthew. His life was radically different from that point forward. How different is your life because of Christ? 
Are you all in? Do you take up your cross daily? Dying to self, dying to your agenda, setting aside your will and taking up God's agenda, God's will, God's work. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life from me will save it. In the Middle Ages, during the Crusades, when a a knight or nobleman would um, get ready to head off to the Holy Lands to fight, a lot of them were baptized. Um, sort of as a demonstration of their, you know, their commitment to, to, to God. And, and some of those, I'm sure, no doubt, were, they were sincere. But for some, it probably was a little more than a superstitious gesture done to ensure God's protection and covering. Because something interesting happened, interesting happened in some of the cases. As, as they would go into the water, some of them would hold their, their dominant arm, their, their fighting arm, the arm that would hold their sword or lance or swing a mace, they would hold it out of the water. Every part of their body was consecrated, was given to God in baptism, but not the part needed to fight. God calls us to go all in. Jesus invites us to follow him, to take up our cross, to, like Levi, leave behind anything and everything that keeps us from following and obeying and Serving Jesus Christ. Verse 29. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. And I think there's a reason that Luke makes a point to tell us that there were a lot of tax collectors at the banquet. Because nobody else, especially the Pharisees, wanted to associate with Levi. It wouldn't have been good for the reputation. It wouldn't have been good for business. It wouldn't have been good for them spiritually, or so they thought and taught. Think of it this way. Suppose somebody in Salina sets up a Ponzi scheme, and they rip off thousands of people. People lose their life savings. And everybody knows who did it. Everybody knows about it, but the person gets off in a technicality. And they brazenly decide, I'm going to stay in Salina. I'm going to still have a high profile. Or maybe somebody at a local charity embezzles thousands of dollars and they get away with it. Again, everybody knows about it, but nothing the law can do for some reason. And suppose that person then at some point publicly says, I've met Jesus and they invite you to their house for dinner. Everybody's going to know if you go. What do you do? Do you go? Jesus would. Jesus did. He went to Levi's house for the banquet. And it's interesting that Levi's response to what Levi's response is to following Jesus. He throws a huge party. Must have cost him a small fortune. And he invites all his friends because he's found something special and life-changing in Jesus. And he wants others to find it too, to have it too. When Jesus Christ invites us to follow him, he, he expects us to share our faith with other people. Listen to how Levi slash Matthew ends his gospel with Jesus' words. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. You know, just like Levi, there are countless people in our world who are hungering for deep connection with God. They may or may not realize that or acknowledge it, 
But God has created each person with a deep desire and need and capacity to connect with God on a personal level. Just like Levi, there are many people who, who, will, who are looking for grace, for forgiveness, for, for acceptance. And just like Levi, they're looking for something to give their lives to. They're looking for Jesus Christ. And, and we who have met Christ, who have put our trust in him, have been given a great gift. And with that great gift comes a great responsibility. We are to share that gift, the good news of Jesus Christ. With those around us so that they too can hear and respond to Jesus' call. Levi instantly knew that, instinctively knew that, and he did. He did it. And we're called to do it too. Verse 30. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his, or Jesus, disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So obviously the Pharisees are not very happy that Jesus is associating with sinners. In their worldview, good people do not associate with bad people. You see, the worldview of the Pharisee was all set up by categories. You're in or you're out. You're worthy or you're not. You're righteous or you're unrighteous. And those categories were not to intersect. Otherwise, a righteous person might get contaminated or corrupted or people might jump to the conclusion if you hung around with, quote, unrighteous people that you yourself are unrighteous and, and you can't have that. So what does that say to us today? Well, if we're not careful, there can be a little bit of Pharisee in all of us at this point. We are to be wise and careful about who we align ourselves with. Yes, we are to have deep and meaningful relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ. Yes, but we must never do that to the exclusion of any sort of real and meaningful relationship with those who don't believe and who don't share our values and lifestyle. If we don't do that, if we pull back completely, if we don't engage on more than a surface level, we're not a following the example of Jesus Christ. He was known as a friend of sinners. In fact, in certain circles, he had a bad reputation because of the company that he kept. We are to be in the world, but not of it. Influencers of the world, but not influenced by it. And how can we be salt and light if we aren't intentional about building relationships with all people, especially those who don't know Jesus? Finally, verses 31 and 32. Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See, the problem the Pharisees had was that they didn't realize that they had a problem. They could not admit their spiritual need. Too proud or whatever to acknowledge that they had a need to be forgiven, to be repentant. They saw themselves as spiritually superior to sinners, tax collectors, Gentiles, etc. And until they could admit that need and go to the great physician himself, they would remain sick. It would be sort of like if you had a heart problem and, and the only surgeon in the world who could fix it lived in, in town in Salina. And you know this. 
All you have to do is to admit that you need help, that you have a problem, to make an appointment with a doctor, the surgeon, and show up, and he's going to make it all better. But if you are not willing to go, no, I don't need to go to the doctor. I'm going to be fine. You're making a big deal about nothing, and it's going to be okay. I don't need help. I'll be fine. You're going to remain sick. And eventually, you may even die. We are all sinners in need of a physician. And the answer to that sickness is not like the Pharisees to rely upon our own goodness or our own good works or to be self-reliant spiritually. The answer is Jesus. And the answer is repentance. And the answer is to acknowledge our need for healing and grace and mercy. Levi slash Matthew recorded Jesus' words in Matthew 5.3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, i.e., those who are humble, who are repentant, who are dependent upon Christ, who trust in his work on the cross and that alone. Those people, Jesus says, they will be in the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus ends with this great irony. Those who know they're sick and who follow Jesus are healthy and righteous in God's sight. But those who think they are well and don't need Jesus' offer are unhealthy and unrighteous in God's sight. Jesus is calling you and he's calling me to come He's inviting us to a meal. He's inviting us to come to the table, to remember what he's done, to give ourselves anew to him. He wants us to attend the banquet that his heavenly father will be throwing in heaven. Jesus says, come, take up a cross and follow me. A few weeks ago, we um, had a wonderful Sunday evening at Webster Conference Center, we had a baptism service and we had a number of adults and teens and youth or children who were baptized. And it's always one of the highlights of the church year. Uh, we also do it in usually February here on Sunday morning because you get to hear how God has been working in somebody's life. You hear their stories, you hear their testimony read, you see how excited they are. Um, you see their family and friends there sharing in that joy. And um, it means that they have heard Christ's call. And that they're all in, that they're buying in, that they're committing themselves to Christ and asking for his help and his strength, that they would follow him and serve him. And so I want to conclude just reading a testimony of a gentleman from our church. It's a short testimony, but um, just wanted to do this. Um, Christ means everything to me. Christ took my alcohol addiction from me. I did not grow up in a Christian family. My parents were heroin addicts. So my childhood was rough, to say the least. All my life, I felt there was something missing. There just had to be a better way. At my lowest point, I felt like taking my own life. I felt helpless and hopeless. I didn't care who I hurt or what bridge I burned. And then a friend of my wife invited us to First Covenant. At the church, I felt like, felt like I had never felt before. For weeks, I would cry during worship. But very soon, I began to have hope. I joined the Iron Man ministry and started reading my Bible once a week. It was the inspiration I needed. Now I read my Bible daily. It is my intention to walk further with the Lord and share my love of the Lord 
and my love of Jesus Christ with other people. God calls each one of us to respond to Jesus' invitation. He calls us to come, to dine with him, to fellowship with him, and then to go and share that joy so that others may come to the table as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you've created us in your image to relate to you and to know you in a deep, meaningful way. That you create us with a hunger and a thirst that is only satisfied and ultimately satisfied in you and you alone. Lord, I pray that, like Levi, we would hear your call and that we would set aside anything and everything that keeps us from obeying you and serving you and aligning our lives with your values and priorities. Forgive us, Father, for we fall short even in our best moments, but we thank you for your grace and your mercy that sustains us. We thank you as well, Father, that there is a great feast that we anticipate whenever we share communion. But in a sense, when we gather together around the table with brothers and sisters of Christ, we, we anticipate it as well. Help us, Lord, to be people who want to expand that feast to let others know there is room at the table for all who acknowledge their need, who acknowledge their failure to meet your standard and who rely upon your grace and mercy. Thank you, Father, for your word of truth and thank you for Jesus Christ, your Son.